from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 3rd. Today, how COVID has overwhelmed El Paso and deciding who gets a vaccine first. So this back here used to be a big storage room and uh, made it into the walk-in refrigerator. This walk-in refrigerator can hold at least 25 uh, loved ones that we're serving. I'm standing outside a mortuary refrigerator at Sunset Funeral Home with Christopher Lujan, the director of this particular facility in El Paso, Texas. Our Elise Hernandez covers Texas for The Post. It's a refrigerator now that's holding 12 bodies, and right next to the door is a whiteboard that has 12 names on it. And as you can see, 90% of those names are pretty much due to covid Lujan said he had to retrofit a storage closet into this mortuary refrigerator at great cost to keep up with the body count in El Paso. The first week that we added this refrigeration unit, it was full the first three days that we actually had it finished. El Paso had more than 35,000 active cases, which was more than Dallas and Houston combined. And those are both cities that are two and three times the size of El Paso. Christopher basically told me that things are at a breaking point. Here in El Paso right now, it's just uh, unbelievable. So right now we're projected to probably by the end of the year, having over a thousand deaths in our community. He talked to me about this one family and this is when he said it hit him. I was serving a family. She lost her husband. They had young kids, uh, two young boys and a young girl. And I remember them, their faces clearly. And as excruciating as that experience was, he recalls them coming back several times because of other family members after having died of COVID-19. They lost three family members within weeks. So how does this experience reflect what's happening in El Paso right now more widely? That's a curious question. Because this virus is wreaking so much carnage in this community, you would think that it would be all over the place. There would be signs of this all over the place. But when I traveled to El Paso, this was a little bit before the Thanksgiving holiday, you got this sense from local elected leaders, from everyday citizens, from these funeral home directors and doctors that there is a fatigue that has set in on the community where, you know, the numbers and the deaths seem not to be penetrating anymore. The consciousness of the, of the community about, you know, what is responsible behavior in a time like this. I drove by malls and dining restaurants and they were full. There were bars that were filling up on the weekends. The message is getting harder to send. 
Well, what strikes me, I I think about Texas generally and specifically about this part of Texas, is that there are other places in the country that saw surges early on, but then not as much later. There are places that didn't see those surges early and only now are starting to deal with coronavirus and real magnitude. But it seems like for Texas and specifically El Paso, that this is something that they've been dealing with pretty steadily, basically since the end of the spring. No, that's exactly right. You know, El Paso saw its numbers spike in July. And while those numbers went down, and even across the state, those numbers went down significantly during the summer, people were still dying. People were still getting sick. And the big problem is getting to the point where hospitalizations are so high that there is no more slack in the system. El Paso, I think, is a little bit of a a cautionary tale, even though the state was able to to come in and help. You know, El Paso got to the point where they were shuffling patients from one hospital to another, waiting for a bed to open up because there were less than 20 ICU beds. This is what it's come to in El Paso amid a relentless COVID surge. Mobile medical units with tightly packed beds set up in a parking lot. You know, it meant opening the convention center and and putting beds there. The convention center here in downtown is being converted into an auxiliary hospital. It means having soldiers be a part of the response. National Guard troops have arrived to help with the increasing number of bodies at the medical examiner's office. You know, I don't know what's going to happen to the rest of Texas, but that's where it could go. And, and, you know, figures like Dr. Anthony Fauci are saying this will be a, a dark winter for, for the United States. I, I think we're facing a whole lot of trouble. And the reason I say that, I think... I prepare a report for our bishop every day. You know, I think... More than anyone, I'm seeing those numbers in stark reality every time I go to the hospital. Father Michael Lewis is part of a handful of priests from the El Paso Diocese. Who are young enough and healthy enough. That have volunteered at their own peril to go into these hospitals, into these, what they call the pit in one of these hospitals, which is a large room with lots of patients that are sick with COVID, to offer last rites to pray with folks Mm -hmm. who are struggling and trying to recover. I take the responsibility very seriously because there have been cases where I know that I'm the last person that's going to see this person alive. Father Lewis recalled many a situation where he was there with the patient from a distance, right, in the doorway or from behind glass or in, in the middle of the hallway you know, praying for them and presiding over a Zoom call with family that was the last goodbye. So we were able to to celebrate the rites of the church. And I think that was very special and a, and a very treasured moment for this family because they were able to to say goodbye to, to their loved one. Um, but the counterpart to that is another case where I was called to a room in another hospital. And in this case, there was no way for me to minister to that patient without being in the room. Uh, But again, the hospital was very kind to uh, outfit me in in PPE so that I could uh, enter the room. And I realized then that this, this, this particular person was very close to death. 
And like I said, that's when I realized I'm going to be the last person to, to see this person alive. So, you know, that was, it was, it's pretty, pretty meaningful. I, I have a number of, of patients that are either my patients or my friends or the family members and relatives of friends of mine. So I also talked to Dr. Emilio Gonzalez Ayala, a pulmonologist, and he told me a story. Let me tell you about one that broke my heart because he's been my patient for 24 years. He's, he's my age. He's 55 years of age. He is a teacher. And I see him once or twice a year, every year. And we're good friends. But this summer, he called the office because he thought uh, he was getting a problem with allergies. And I told him, listen, you know, let's let's just make sure that you don't have the, the infection. Let's test you. By the time that I got the result and I had to call him to let him know the result and that to see how he was doing, he was already in the ER. And I walk in there and I see him in one of the ICU rooms and I go in to talk to him. He couldn't speak. He was so short of breath. He could just, you know, try and gesture to me. I had to intubate him. This was a month ago. For weeks, even after his his shift was over, he was inquiring about this patient as he got worse and worse. He'd been there for about 35 days. And there were nights that Dr. Gonzalez Ayala you know, talked about how he couldn't sleep. You wake up concerned about a certain patient you left in the ICU or in the hospital where you know, you know that the trend is going to be to deteriorate and you're concerned about, you know, whether you're going to find new problems in the morning or he's going to, is he going to survive the night? This patient of yours, is, is he still, is he still fighting? He's alive as of this midday when I checked, he's alive, but he's on a level of support That is incredible. He ultimately died last week. Given the fact that we're in the eighth month of this pandemic, we're becoming a little numb to the numbers. And I tell my wife and my kids, you know, that that boredom has won the battle against fear. What we've seen around the country is that so many of the ways in which people do or do not respond to this crisis are reflective of our politicized environment and that even the question of masks, of social distancing, of staying home, of trying not to be indoors, of making hard decisions, like that those are all ultimately political decisions. I'm wondering how that is playing out specifically in El Paso. Well, El Paso is a is a tight-knit community. It's it's a very proud community. It's a community that came together after, you know, a, a racist attack in August 2019, where 23 people were shot dead at a Walmart, if you can recall that tragedy. You know, El Paso kind of showed the nation what it looks like to come together after a tragedy like that. And it's curious that, you know, 
less than a year later, you have a community that's struggling to summon that same level of solidarity to say, you know, we are going to stop this virus in its track. We are going to wear our masks. We are going to refrain or limit our trips, you know, out to stores and restaurants and things like that. The only thing that the folks I talked to could used to explain that is pandemic fatigue, that this is a real thing, that we've lived with this now for nine months. People are tired. I'm tired, you know, of living with the specter of death around us and wondering if it's inevitable or if the precautions that one is taking is actually going to protect them. Right. Hmm. And I think that's a calculation that every family is making. I talked to one woman, Bonnie Soria Nahera. Soria Nahera, that's B O N N I E. Bonnie Soria Nahera is a mother, a daughter, a marketing manager at Burger King, and a member of uh, the greater El Paso community. She lost six members of her family, including her mother and father, within weeks of each other. And she herself came very close to death in July when she contracted COVID-19. Her mother was the first one to get sick. She couldn't breathe. She was coughing so much. It was, I mean, she sent me recordings of her coughing and, and it just sounded so horrible. She went into the hospital and after the third day, she was put on a ventilator. On that third day, my dad started feeling sick. Anyway, I call the ambulance. They take him to the hospital. And um, from that Friday, my mom went into the following Friday. She passed away. They call me to tell me that her heart stopped. Um, and, you know, she passed away. Then I get a call less than an hour later. And they say, um, your dad's not doing well. We're going to put him on a ventilator. The day that he went on a ventilator, he didn't know his wife had died. And they decided not to tell him until he had improved. And he had gotten much better. He was on the point where they weaned him off the ventilator. You know, he asked me how my mom was and I lied. And, you know, I was just like, well, I kept changing the subject at the time. And Bonnie realized that she had to tell him what had happened. And it was devastating, as you might imagine. He was, he was really upset. He was crying. Um, and the morning of... My mom's funeral, which was going to be my mom's funeral that Wednesday, they had they had already set up his um, Zoom so he can watch his, his camera, his, I'm sorry, the computer, so that he could see the funeral services. And I told my kids, we're going to leave in 15 minutes. You know, we're to the funeral home. Then I get a call from the hospital, and they said, your dad's heart stopped. He died, basically minutes before his wife's funeral was supposed to be live streamed, you know, from his hospital bed. And in in the the months since then has lost four other family members. And she's even tired of carrying the message. You know, she was on Facebook sort of telling people, you need to wear your mask. This is what happened to my family. She went on local media telling, you know, her story of what happened to them. And she still had people posting things on her timeline about, you know, resisting wearing a mask and resisting some of the restrictions and putting priority on things that she thought were not important compared to the loss of life and the suffering that a family can face with this disease. One of my family's members that I spoke to said, Bonnie, at this point, what's the point? What is the point of talking to people? What is the point of continuing the message, continuing to tell people, wear a mask, 
social distance. Well, what's the point of keeping? Because people have already made up their minds. So how do you think Bonnie's experience is reflective of what is happening to so many people right now? I think Bonnie experienced the the multiplying effect of this virus, right? The way that it sort of spreads quickly in one family and can take out an entire generation. It's not just the initial, you know, shock of the death and you know, and the arrangements and the sadness. It's, it's a pervasive grief. It's the it's the mourning that that continues for months after. It's the, the mental health and emotional effects. You know, my daughter tells me, "Mom, I think you need to see a therapist too. I think you need to get some help because you're trying to be there for everybody else. You're trying to help everybody else in our family cope with all these losses and, and deal with all these, everything that comes with the loss, that you're not taking care of yourself. And I think it's the residual effects of this virus, of this pandemic, that we're probably underestimating as a community and how long we are going to live with this. You know, there's good news on the horizon that a vaccine is you know, quickly you know, moving through the approval process and, and might be, you know, distributed to communities here at the end of this month. But there are other residual effects. There are long-term, you know, health issues. There are long-term mental and emotional health issues. You know, American families have taken a pounding. And Bonnie's struggle with that is absolutely one facet of that experience. Aurelise Hernandez covers Texas for The Post. As we get closer to releasing the first coronavirus vaccine, a CDC advisory group has been working to answer the question that we've all been wondering— Who will be the first people to get vaccinated? And they are trying to figure out what is the best way, what is the fairest way to give the vaccine to those who need it the most and who can have the biggest impact. Lena Sun is a health reporter, and she's been covering the big announcement out of that advisory panel this week. They're recommending that two groups get the vaccine first, healthcare workers and residents and staff of long-term care facilities. There are about 21 million healthcare personnel. This includes not just doctors and nurses, but pharmacists, respiratory therapists, all sorts of clinicians and folks who work directly with patients and indirectly. Those people are most important because you need to protect them because they operate the machinery of the healthcare system and you need that system to be functioning to take care of the rest of us. And then there are about 3 million residents of long-term care facilities And those people are your most vulnerable. So that's about 21 plus 3 is about 24 million people. Warp Speed has said that they would have about 40 million doses available by the end of this year, end of the month. So they're hoping that they will be able to vaccinate this population. (laughs) 
You know, it's interesting that we're making a lot of these decisions about who was going to be in which priority group right now. Because I've been hearing reports from the UK in particular where they've already established groups and orders and people know, you know, when roughly they will be receiving the vaccine. So is the sense that we are behind on this? I think every country is doing it differently. Here, the advisory group has said, you know, they want to look at all the data first before they make recommendations. Because if, for example, the vaccine turns out to be especially effective in an older population, that would skew how they might want to recommend. They might say, okay, we might go more strongly with the older population. But if it's about the same, one could argue that if you really want to bring this pandemic to a halt or to try to curb it, you want to reduce the spread of infection and you might get a bigger impact if you go by vaccinating a different group, like essential workers. That would include teachers. So Lena, it sounds like what you're saying is that right now there's kind of this choice between do you save as many lives as possible or do you try to stop the pandemic as quickly as possible? And that when it comes to this vaccine and the choices about who gets it first, those are actually kind of different things. Yeah. I mean, people have said that if you want to reduce the spread of infection, right, then the impact you're going for is perhaps a group like essential workers, where they're out and about, they're not home, they are providing essential services to keep society functioning, transport, groceries, you know, supermarkets, you name it, versus if you wanted to reduce mortality or death, then the groups that are hardest hit are the older people. And that would definitely um, have a greater impact on the older group. Some of the things that have come up in the discussions, which were kind of new insight for me, are that if you vaccinate a population in a nursing home, those people are frail and elderly and by definition, you know, weaker. And they may die whether they got the vaccine or not. And then I think it would be harder. There's not enough data or science to show that they did not die because of the vaccine. You know, there's like it's hard to prove that that didn't happen. And then there's some worry that this might affect confidence in the vaccine. That's actually really interesting because it feels like it just speaks to how much there is a level of mistrust in this vaccine and how hard it is, even when people do have access to it, to actually trust that it is okay to be administered. I think trust is a very big issue with this vaccine. One reason why they are, I think, hoping that healthcare workers, including doctors and nurses, when they take it, and if they talk about the vaccine and have a good experience with it, that then they will be able to share that information with their patients. And we know that for patients, their most trusted source of information are their doctors and uh, healthcare providers. And that will help to boost confidence in, in the vaccine. And that's the hope. And then what happens to the rest of us? When will we all get vaccines? So everybody wants to know, what about me? When will I be able to get vaccine? And that is a very good question because that's what's on everybody's minds. What the health officials have said is that they hope that there will be enough vaccine ramped up and produced by the spring so that those of us who don't fall into those categories can start getting shots as well. 
Lena Sun is a health reporter for The Post. The CDC advisory committee will continue to roll out guidance for who should get the vaccines next, whether that's essential workers or people over 65 or people with pre-existing conditions. It will then be up to the states to implement that guidance. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I just want to take a moment to mark a little anniversary. Two years ago today, we published our first episode of Post Reports. There have been so many things from the past two years that I could not have imagined when we first started out. Some of the truly insane news events that we've covered, the tragedies that we've witnessed as a country, the fact that I would be recording this podcast from my closet for the better part of a year— But there have also been so many wonderful surprises that I couldn't have imagined. The incredible, committed people who work on this podcast every day. And the thoughtfulness, kindness, and loyalty of the people who listen to our show. So whether you've been with us since the very first One More Thing, or if you've just started listening, we appreciate you and feel so lucky to be able to do this work. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 